Good morning. Our scripture reading today can be found in Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all of his attendants, so he declared, everyone, leave now. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Jesus said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me the master of all of Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you won't starve, since the famine will last five years. You and my brother Benjamin have seen with your own eyes that I'm speaking to you. Tell my father about my power in Egypt and about everything you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Um, we are wrapping up. I don't know, there's part of me that's glad I'm wrap, we're wrapping this up. Well, resilience. So you all are pretty resilient now, is that true, right, now that you've been through this series? But we spent several weeks talking about resilience. This is the last week, so we're going to wrap that up, and we have the great ending to the Joseph story this morning. And um, I hope this series has been good for you. I hope it's been encouraging for you. Um, that's my hope and my prayer as, we pre- as, as I preach and as we share these messages. I hope you know that. Um, I, when I was in high school, I had this great idea, this grand idea that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And I figured that out my junior year of high school. The problem with that is, guess when you have to apply to the Naval Academy? Your junior year of high school, right? So I kind of missed the window on that because I didn't really get to it. But anybody here ever thought about going to an academy? We have the Naval Academy, we have Coast Guard Academy, Air Force, and then we also have West Point. The Marines actually go to the Naval Academy if you were thinking, well, you're missing a, a branch, but that's where they train. Anybody ever thought about that? I don't know if anybody's thought about that. Yeah, good. Yeah, we've, we've had those 
moment, I had that moment of aspiration. So I thought, I've been reading a book uh, recently, and it talked about what does it take to get into one of our academies, and particularly West Point. What does it take to get into West Point? Uh, not only do you have to start the process in your junior year of high school, you have to, which is well ahead of every other college, right? You don't apply to college till your senior year. So you have to be thinking about an academy probably in your sophomore year of high school to apply. The other thing is you have to come with the, one of the, some of the top SAT and ACT scores in your class and in the nation. You need to have superlative marks in physical fitness, push-ups, running, strength, fitness. So you have to have like top ranks uh, in those and top marks in that area. You have to have a nomination from a member of Congress. And I remember thinking about that, like, I don't know anybody in Congress. Who am I going to ask for that? And then it's interesting because nearly all of the people who apply are varsity sports, play varsity sports, and are often are team captains of those varsity sports. So I want you to think about that class of people who apply, not class like social status or class, but just think of the, the way that they, all the things that they have to meet, the criteria have to meet. 14,000 people apply to the West Point every year. 14,000 juniors apply to West Point every year. 4,000 are nominated by their congressmen and women, or also if you, if you knew the vice president, you could take that nomination as well. 2,500 of those will meet the standard. 2,500 of those 14,000 students will meet the standard of West Point, and 1,200 will be accepted. So from 14,000 to 1,200, and then you get accepted, and these 1,200 cadets go to West Point. Now, interesting to point out, 20% of those freshmen, first-year cadets will not graduate. In fact, many of them will quit within the first seven weeks, which makes you kind of wonder, well, what's going on? Why are they quitting after seven weeks? Well, they get indoctrinated into the military way of life in those first seven weeks. It's called beast weeks at West Point. And from five in the morning till 10 at night, you train, you get training, you do physical exercise, you have 45 minutes for breakfast, 45 minutes for lunch, and 45 minutes for dinner. Other than that, seven days a week, for seven weeks, you are indoctrinated into what it means to be a part of West Point, what it means to be a part of the U.S. military. And a lot of students, cadets, get to the point where I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. So they start to look at this and they say, what is it, you know, we've got the you know, we've got great athletes, great academics, great, you know, people who are at the top of their schools. Why are they quitting? <laughs> Why are they giving up? <laughs> What's going on here? And they've actually studied this, and they've determined that there's one factor that determines whether a person is going to quit or not, and they call it grit. There's actually a whole book written about it called Grit that the, the students that score the lowest on the grit scale are the ones that quit. I kind of equate grit with resilience. <laughs> you know, I think grit is a part of resilience. Determination and passion are a part of being resilient. And I would imagine that even though you didn't go to academy or I didn't go to academy, I imagine that some of you right here have shown a lot of grit in life. You have shown a lot of resilience and I don't think you have to go to a cat. What I'm saying is you, it's not about talent, is it? 
It's not about being a varsity captain. It's about determination and passion around something. And I call it, and I think that's very similar to resilience. So I thought as we wrap up today, we'd remind ourselves of what are those, some of those things about being resilient? What helps us be resilient? If you remember week one, we talked about we pray, resilient people praise God even in the pit. When Joseph was thrown in the pit and he was beat up, he still praised God. He still looked to God in the pit. You might remember that week because we talked about crayons, broken crayons, still color. Or as I say it in my vernacular, crayons. Broken crayons, still color, right? We remembered week two, we talked about remembering God's faithfulness, even when you're in that place of, of hopelessness. Week three, we talked about seeing obstacles as challenges, not hindrances. In week four, we talked about trusting in God's timing for the events that trust that God has a timeline that may not be our timeline. And then week five was Snowmageddon. You remember that Sunday? We all, nobody was here. And we talked about rest and how rest is important to rest up for resilience. And then the past two weeks, we've been learning. Susan did a great job last week of talking to us about resilience and being forgiving people and how to forgive. So we've talked about forgiveness as a part of resilience. And this week, we look at another aspect of resilience. Our last aspect of resilience is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Because today we see that Joseph is finally able to reconcile with his brothers. He's finally allowed to be himself before his brothers and reveal his identity to his brothers. And it's interesting because we actually got into this a little bit last time, but the, what we, we missed or maybe need to be reminded of is that just before this, Judah has come to Joseph. Judah, if you remember, Judah's the brother that sold came up with the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. They threw him in a pit, and then Judah's the one that says, hey, there's some slave traders coming by. Let's sell our brother into slavery in Egypt. Judah concocts this plan. And Judah now, 22 years later, is talking to Joseph, and he is saying to Joseph, Joseph, do not take Benjamin. That's the new younger brother, the favorite of the father now. And he says, I will take Benjamin's place. So Judah, the one that sold out, is now the one who's saying, I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to take the place of Benjamin. Please take me, let Benjamin go home. The very thing he wouldn't do for Joseph, he's now willing to do for Benjamin. And it's at that moment, it's interesting because it's at that moment that Joseph sees that Judah is changed, repented, turned things around, so to speak. And so it's at that moment that Joseph loses it, right? He weeps again. All the emotions come flying back, but they're not negative emotions. They're positive emotions. They're emotions of reconciliation and re, re, rejoining of the family and learning about his father still being alive. There, there's a lot of joy in the tears in this moment of reconciliation. You know, I think about this moment, and I don't know about you, but how would you have handled that moment? 22 years in the making. You know, my, uh, my daughter has a boyfriend. Pray for me. Um, and he's got, uh, he came to me in the, the beginning of the NFL season. NFL, he's a big NFL football fan. He's a manager at Ole Miss. And uh, he came to me in the 20, beginning of the 2017 NFL football season. He's a big Giants fan. He came to me to announce that the Giants were going to the Super Bowl that year. 
I don't know if you follow NFL football. I can understand why you, some of you just groaned. So, but he comes to me at the beginning of the season and he says, the Giants are going to the Super Bowl. Eli's going to win. Eli Manning's going to win another Super Bowl. I guarantee it. I was like, really? Really? You're pretty sure of yourself, right? I said, I said if, the, if the Giants go to the Super Bowl, I will wear an Eli Manning jersey to the Super Bowl party that year because I'm, a, I'm not a Giants fan. So he says, you're on. I said, but here's the case. Then you have to wear a Redskin, because I was a Redskin fan at the time. I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan now. <clears throat> Just clear that up. Um, so I said, I'll wear a Redskin jersey. I'll, you wear a Redskin jersey to the Super Bowl party. He's like, all right, this is a deal. The Giants went 3-13 and 13 that season. Now, how do you think I responded to him every time we chatted about football? Hey, the Giants are one and seven. You still think they're going to make it to the Super Bowl? Well, statistically, there's still a chance. <laughs> I said, I don't think so. But you know what I did all season long? I told you so. I told you so. Every week they would lose. I'd be like, told you so. How's that? How, what jersey do you want to wear this, this coming Super Bowl party? You know, I was just rubbing it in, right? How many people have had that temptation to say, I told you so. If anybody ever had an opportunity to say, I told you so, it's Joseph, right? I mean, he's the one that predicted all this in those dreams that he shared with his brothers at the age of 17, a little maybe arrogant, cocky at the time, but in the same way, true, right? And he said, he could have said, I told you so. Notice he doesn't. Because he's not worried about being right. Notice that. I want you to notice that, that he's not so concerned about being right, uh, saying I told you so, because he's more involved, more committed to being in right relationship to his brothers. You get that? He, he's, more in, he's more interested in being in right relationship to his family rather than being right and saying I told you so. I want you to notice that. I think because... Maybe that's what I notice about myself sometimes is, is relationship more important than being right? And what does that look like? And I think Joseph models that for us. And he says, you know, it's not about me being right. It's about us being in right relationship with each other. And ultimately, notice he says to be in right relationship with God. See, because all through this reconciliation story, notice four times, who does he mention? Four times he mentions God. He says, God did this. God sent me here. God planned this. He, he gives credit to God about everything that's happening. And he even says that in verse 5. He says, now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. God did this. Think about that. Think about all that Joseph has been through up to this point to say, God did this. God planned this. God had a bigger picture, and Joseph is able to acknowledge that bigger picture. And because of that, because he's not so invested in being right, but because he's invested in right relationship with others and right relationship with God, he's looking to God and he's looking to reconcile with his brothers. And you see signs of reconciliation here. It's not just his words that are reconciling. Two things that he does. One is he kisses all his brothers. Now, I don't think we do that as people. I mean, we don't 
uh, I don't go around kissing people on a regular basis or brothers. My brother and my brother's going to come in a week and I'm probably not going to kiss him when I see him come off the plane, right? But what is he doing? What's this? In that culture, the kiss was a sign of affection and it was a sign of reconciliation. So notice that he goes to each brother and he kisses each one of his brothers. He shows a sign of reconciliation to them. And then the next thing he does, which we didn't read this morning, but if you keep reading in chapter 45 and verse 22, you'll see that he also gives each of his brothers new clothes. Wow. What, what got this whole thing started? Remember? What was it that got this whole thing stirred up? Jackson, what, what was it? Exactly. It's his, it's his robe. It's his cloak that got him in trouble, that they were fighting about. And then again, it was a robe or a cloak that got him falsely accused. And now, what is he doing? What is he giving his brothers? New clothes. Another sign of reconciliation. You know you're ready to reconcile when you're willing to buy a gift for somebody that hurt you, <laughs> right? That's reconciliation. In fact, he's actually expressing what uh, people call today the five languages of love. If you've heard of that, five languages of love, two of those languages are right here, affection and gift giving. These are signs of affection, of love that Joseph is expressing to his brothers. And then think about this. You know, so here's where I always go, sorry. When, when the prodigal son returned home to see his father, if you know that story from the New Testament, when he comes home, he's repentant, he's, he's humbled, and he comes home, and his father runs out and throws his arms around his son who's returned home, who was lost and is now found. And what does he do? He kisses him as a sign of reconciliation, as a sign of forgiveness. And then the next thing he does is as soon as the, the son comes and gives the speech, you know, well, I'm sorry, Dad, I did something wrong. If you could just let me back in as a servant. He, Dad ignores the whole speech. He says, go get a robe and put it on him. Sandals on his feet. Ring on his finger. He gives him the gift of new clothes again. Signs of reconciliation, signs of hope, signs of restored status within the family. That's what Joseph is doing. We see the New Testament. And here's the thing. When you and I return home to God, did you know that God embraces us and welcomes us and loves us and forgives us? But here's the other thing. Did you know you get new clothes? Did you know that? Did you know about the new clothes that you get? I'll remind you about it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That when you and I come to faith in Christ, we get new clothing too, spiritually speaking. We are clothed with Christ. Colossians talks about being clothed with Christ compassion, kindness, gentleness. Talks about the attributes of that clothing. And then above all, what do you put on on that clothing? Love. Love is the piece, the last piece of our new clothing. So when we do this, when we come back to relationship with God, we also get new clothing along with being children of God. But you know, even after all of this, they move back to Gosh, the Goshen, they move the families, everybody moves, dad comes to Egypt, they're 
Pharaoh actually gives them carts and goods to bring them and transfer. He pays the moving expenses for the whole family of Jacob to get them to Egypt. They finally get into Egypt, but the brothers are still a little concerned. They're a little worried. Why would they be still worried? (laughs) Maybe this is a trap. Maybe something else is going on. Maybe Joseph will change his mind. Maybe this reconciliation stuff really isn't happening. So once again, Joseph speaks to them. And here's what Joseph says. I think this is the verse, the key verse in the whole story. He says, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people just as he's doing today. I'm going to read that one again. You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people just as he's doing today. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about something bad that's happened to you and the possibility, just the possibility that God could produce something good from it. Think about that. Could God produce something good from something bad that's happened? I believe in a God who can. I believe Joseph could see that. Because, and I think this is another key to resilience Because I think resilient people look for God's redemption and look for a way to bring about God's redemption and reconciliation in people's lives. They're more interested in helping bring people into relationship with God and into relationship with each other than just saying, I told you so. Resilient people look for that. You know, I was, uh, I I got to witness close, not too close, obviously, mostly through media, but also friends, uh, the Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore. I don't, there was a, we went, we've gone through some racial tension in our nation, and after Ferguson, there were other uh, riots that happened, and there was a riot in Baltimore around Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray was, was arrested, and he died in police custody as he was being transported. And uh, so the, 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 the streets erupted uh, because this African-American young man was, was died in, in, our, in the hands of the police. And so there were a lot of questions about what happened. But anyway, the streets erupted. And there was stuff on social media, and there was stuff on the news, and there was all kinds of destruction in the city, and, and people were just angry. And right there in the inner city neighborhood, right there in the poorest neighborhoods of the city, and, and it's not really that I want to share with you, but I want to share with you that the day that riot happened, it was the next morning after that, I saw brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians of all different backgrounds, go into the city. And they went in with trash bags, and they went in with brooms, and they went in with their time and their energy, and they just helped clean up the streets of Baltimore. People from the suburbs, people from other cities, people just went in the next morning and said, we don't want this to be what our city is about. We want to, what are they looking to do? They wanted to redeem the bad situation. They wanted to bring good out of a bad circumstance. That was their heart. And I think that's the heart of Christians is to be resilient, to look for God's redemption in the midst of it, to be God's plan. This past week, I I met a young man who just got out of jail 
because of drug addiction and drug dealing. You know what he's doing right now? He's leading a Celebrate Recovery program for other addicts. That's taking something bad and making something good. Or I think about, uh, Rick reminded me of a homeless man that I met several years ago who is now a crisis manager for a homeless ministry. He was on the streets, he was living as homeless, and now he's a crisis manager for homeless people. What did he do? He took a bad situation in his life and he said, how can I redeem this? How can I do something good with it? Or I think about the, uh, some women that I know that, are, that were abused as they were growing up and now they're doing therapy and counseling for families and children. They took something bad that happened in their life and they brought about something good. They wanted to make a difference in others' lives. That's the redemptive quality of resilient people. That's the redemptive quality of God coming out in people because they believe that God can bring something good out of something bad. There's one other person, one other story of a resilient person I wanted to share with you, and her name is Peggy. Peggy's uh, parents were missionaries in Japan prior to World War II. And Peggy, when her parents, uh, when World War II broke out, her parents fled to the Philippines and were hiding in the jungles with the Filipino guerrillas. And Peggy went to the United States to go, to go to college. And she was in school while her parents were hiding out in the Philippines. And the Japanese eventually found her parents and killed them. She lost both her parents. She got word while she was in school here in the United States that her parents had been killed by Japanese soldiers. So after school, after college, Peggy decided, and this World War II was in full swing at this point, Peggy decided to go work in Salt Lake City in an internment camp for Japanese people, particularly in the hospital where Japanese prisoners were held because she spoke Japanese and she felt that she could help the Japanese people who, if you weren't aware, were put into internment camps in the United States. And they were held there. And some of the prisoners of war also were, were brought to the States and were held there. So Peggy ministered to them, was kind to them, ministered, cared for them. Now I want you to fast forward to after the war. There was a man named Mitsuo Fushida who was one of the commanding pilots who led the raid on Pearl Harbor. Fushida was an officer in the Japanese Navy and he was a pilot and he was a nationalist. In fact, after the war, he was angry that the United States had won the war. And he was angry about the bombs being dropped on his homeland. And he was angry and he was uh, drinking and a lot of other things. And he was uh, having a hard time readjusting to life as a civilian. And he met a friend who was a prisoner of war in the United States. In fact, he went to the docks and met his friend coming off the boat. His, his friend had just sailed back from the United States who, where he had been held as a prisoner of war, and he met his friend on the docks in Japan, and they went and had lunch together. And Fushida sat down with this former POW, Japanese POW, and he noticed that he was different. And he was asking about his experience in the internment camp, and he reported to him that how well treated he was in the prison camps in America versus Japanese prison camps. And then he particularly told him about one young woman named Peggy. 
that while he was in the hospital, cared for him and was kind to him and gave things to him and took care of him. And he couldn't understand why she would do that. And then one day he asked her, why are you being so kind to us? And then he learned that her parents had been killed by some of his fellow soldiers. Then he really asked the question, why are you doing this? And she says, because Christ lives in me. Because God loves you, and I am called to love you. And she shared her witness of God's work in her life to him. He became a Christian. But then Fushida, now confronted with all this hatred and anger, is now learning that the Japanese people were cared for and loved by somebody who was an American. His two worlds were colliding. And he, left, he was left with this question, where does this love come from? Where does this love come from? That's a great question. Where does this love come from? And that began his search and then he met somebody else that some of you know named Jake DeShazer, who was a graduate of SPU, and he gave his life to Christ. And he became a Christian <laughs> because he could answer the question, where does this love come from? That's redemptive. That's resilience. See, resilient people like Peggy Look for, for a way to answer that question. Where does this love come from? Let's pray together.